This is a mental health podcast, so difficult topics may arise. Please proceed with caution. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Better, Stories of Mental Health. I'm Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi, and we're your hosts and licensed therapists here to destigmatize mental health one episode at a time. In each episode, we dive into our guests' special experiences with mental health, coping mechanisms, and how they have embraced their own mental health journey. Today's episode features a topic that is critical given the recent events in our world and in society. The iconic Michelle Kwan is joining us today. She is a two-time Olympic medalist, five-time world champion, nine-time U.S. champion, and a member of the AAPI community. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for being here. We are so excited. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. It's it's a stressful time. I mean, it continues like this pandemic and all these various variants. It's stressful and it continues to be stressful. But I'm really delighted to be a part of this podcast. Mental health is it's such an important conversation and I'm I'm glad that it's breaking down stigmas and especially in the Asian American community. I think in in the sports world, it's also a struggle because you're supposed to be perceived as this like perfect human being, physically, mentally sound. And, you know, now that Simone and, and Naomi and Michael Phelps and others have really been at the forefront of like talking about w- what they have faced, it's like it's important that people, it humanizes them, but also makes people realize that we're all dealing in our own way some challenges and personal things. You never know what people are going through. That was really insightful, Michelle. And we have lots of questions about um, about that because of your personal, you know, experiences in the sports world, but also a lot of questions about like the Asian community and especially the past, you know, year and a half and and what's been going on in our in our world. Um, I've been a big fan of yours since I was a little girl watching you on TV. So this is like very surreal for me, and I'm so happy to get the opportunity uh, to actually talk about really important topics as well. The first question I want to kind of get into is, according to what you've experienced, how is mental health talked about and addressed in the Asian culture? Well, it's great to be talking with both of you about mental health. Um, It's such an important conversation to have. And yeah, well, we need to go right into it. Um, From my personal experience, you know, mental health isn't necessarily addressed or talked about much uh, in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. I think there's still a lot of social stigma, uh, embarrassment, and the idea of saving face, uh, which prevents a lot of Asians from seeking help and addressing problems in their lives. Uh, I think there are a lot of cultural factors as well, like language, gender, And in particular, there are certain factors that come into play, you know, being an Asian American, Asian immigrant who immigrated to the United States. Um, My parents immigrated to the United States in in the late 70s with the hopes for a better life, you know, and more opportunities. I, I believe their mentality was always put your head down, work hard, work very, very hard and and do not speak up. And it's unimaginable, really, to think to speak up and, and talk about mental health, like depression or anxiety or anything, stress. What's that? You know, um, my parents struggle, like many immigrants, uh, to make ends meet. 
uh, a roof overhead, food in our bellies. So they, they would probably say that they didn't have money or the means, you know, to get help. You know, affordability, accessibility is really also a challenge. Um, and if you don't have the means sometimes to get help, it's really hard. And it, this isn't just a AAPI or a cultural thing. It's a problem across the board. I can resonate with that because I come from a Middle Eastern background and it was kind of the same. It's like you have to do what you have to do. And growing up with parents who were also immigrants to the United States, I immigrated here when I was eight, and they um, had to people please. Like people pleasing is this thing where you have to be like, you know, really careful with what you say based on like, you know, what you need and to be taken seriously. And, you know, you, you again, you don't talk about like these issues because of resources, because of money. I remember my mom would get like an allowance from what my dad could afford to give her to pay for stuff that we needed. And it was really a struggle. Um, so mental health is definitely like you can't even think about getting help when you're still focused on survival. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's this like front that I think a lot of immigrants put forward, like put on a good face or saving face in the Asian culture or like that side of you, you do not want to show. Like you don't even want to show that to your family, let alone expressing this problem that you might have that you're dealing with. And I think if you don't speak up, problems aren't just going to disappear, right? They don't go away and vanish. They become <laughs> lingering and it, it develops into a, a bigger, bigger problem. Yeah, that was my next question, because I know at the beginning you mentioned saving face and I didn't know what you meant by that. But is it because mental health is stigmatized so much? So just pretending like nothing is there yeah. is easier? Yeah. Not easier, but saving face to people around? Even when I try to put myself in my parents' shoes, you know, I, I think of their journey to the United States with all these aspirations of the American dream. Meanwhile, they're struggling to make ends meet. Uh, their English is not so good and they're learning on the fly. And yeah, they're like, it's like sink or swim. And sometimes they're sinking. It's like quicksand. And I, I think to be able to address mental health and talking about the anxiety or the pressure or, you know, the pressure of immigrating too. just imagine, I, I can only imagine my grandparents, you know, who are on my mother's side were like, why are you moving to the United States? And there's these aspirations that my mom had immigrating to the United States. And like for, for us, their, her children to go to great school, have a better life, you know, have a good job and go off to great college. You know, she didn't go to college. My dad didn't go to high school. So there was a lot of pressure and, and the fear of failure. Um, and that could be very hard, you know, growing up hard on your yourself too as a child of immigrant parents. I think often it's overlooked. We overlook these things because you don't only have this like, you know, different differentiation culture, which we'll definitely like talk about where, you know, you're growing up in, in America with, you know, an Asian culture and parents who are struggling themselves to to make ends meet and to fit into the culture and save face and and make it and give you a better life, which is why they immigrated here in the first place. And there's so much stress that, you know, in the home because of that, even though they're it's for good cause, it, they're trying to do the best they can, but it's not perfect, right? Yeah, it, it never is perfect. Uh, even when you make plans and 
you know, you're not struggling with financially or it's, it's tough. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate to have had an incredible childhood and, and I think of how much my parents sacrificed for that childhood that I had. You know, I, I actually recently went up to Palos Verdes, which is very close to where I live now. Uh, and, and it's my old stomping grounds when I went where I went to elementary school. I kind of revisited <laughs> where I started skating. And it brought all these wonderful memories. And I was talking to my father and he was like, that was a tough time for me. You know, I showed him a picture of when I was, I think, five years old and I got this yellow bear. I called it yellow fuzzy wuzzy. And I looked so happy. And I was, and there was my dad in the background and he was a little disheveled. He had a tie on and shirt out, (laughs) not tucked in anymore. And he was like, that was such a stressful time. And when he said that, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that was a time where, you know, the mortgage and my work wasn't going so well. And then I, you know, it was so stressful, but I was so ignorant at the time, you know, here I was like five years old and it was my birthday and having a good old time. And my dad, you know, juggling multiple jobs, you know, stressful, stressed out and no one really to like comfort him, you know, to talk about, talk things through. And I, I think of that, I, sometimes you just don't know what the other person's going through. Yeah. You gave me goosebumps, like just explaining that story because you even mentioned with people who are immigrants, they don't show it. So no one really knows what other people are going through. And even now I'm in Canada, you're both in the United States. Like we would never know what somebody is struggling with when they're constantly just putting on a face to pretend like everything's okay. Yeah. I mean, culturally, Asian Americans are are taught sort of not to speak up. Uh, and, and that's a problem when I, I said earlier, like, put your head down, keep working, keep working. Uh, that could be dangerous at times because if you don't speak up, um, things don't change. Um, if you're dealing with a problem, you keep quiet. Nobody can help you. You know, you stay silent and people don't read minds and how will they know if you have a problem? So bottom line is they can't address the issue. Um, (laughs) in my family, I think we have evolved in in many ways uh, as a family. I look back at when I was growing up um, and how we used to not emote um, or articulate or or speak out. And for example, um, my parents never really said "I love you." Uh, to us, to the kids, to to one another. Um, it's just something that we didn't say, uh, never articulated. Um, I was actually the first in the family to say I love you to, to my father, to my parents, to my, my siblings. Um, and I remember it very clearly. It was after 9-11, um, and it was, you know, the wake of this tragedy, realizing that the fragility of life, you know. Um, and I, I first said it to my father, when I was on the road, I was, I was either competing or on the road doing shows. And before we hung up, I said, dad, I love you. And you could hear this like pause. And then he said, I love you right back. (laughs) He said, I love you. And, and I, I think both of us at that moment realized 
it's good to hear it. You know, it's good to emote and and express oneself. And I think culturally, it's not that they didn't love each other. We didn't love one another, but it was just culturally we just didn't open up like that. Um, but now it's like the floodgates of emotions <laughs> in our family. That's so inspirational. It's like that took that one step from you to say that and it kind of changed everything. Was that something that you noticed like your American friends, like non-Asian or, you know, because because I, I, I can kind of relate to that. It's like seeing like my, my friends that would be like, love you, dad, love you, mom. And it was just like so normal, but that's like not said. And did that encourage you to kind of speak up or what was it that got you to say that? I think it was perhaps friends and perhaps it was, you know, that coupled with the tragedy of 9-11 and realizing that anything can happen. Um, uh, I have a fear of flying too. So 9-11 was horrific and, and traumatized me, to, you know, getting on a plane. And I, I text every single, you know, I text my mom and dad every time I get on a plane. I'm like, I love you. I love you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think at 21, after I was 21 at the time, and not, watching 9-11 and, and just realizing I got to just tell them you know, so they don't ever wander, you know, and I don't want to even think about it or talk about it, but it's, it's life is short. Was it ever strange for them to start emoting after that? Was it difficult or was it kind of a natural process and everything changed after that experience? That's a very good question. I think after, like I said, it's like been like the floodgates after that, but I think it probably was more of a struggle for my parents' generation as opposed to my siblings, like my brother, sister, and I, we we have always been very open and uh, expressive, perhaps not emotionally at times, but I think the transition was a lot easier. But for my parents, I think it, it's been a gradual sort of transition and emotion and emoting and expression of love and frustration and, you know, talking about feelings. It's, it's one of those, it, it was a big step for the entire family. Yeah. And you often do that in front of thousands of people because you t you're open about it in interviews and social media. When did you make that change and decide, okay, maybe it is okay to speak up about these things? I think, like I said earlier, like if you don't speak up, nothing ever changes. So in a way, I feel empowered even more as I articulate my frustrations or emote or really be myself. Like in, in interviews, sometimes the questions are very difficult, but honesty is the best approach and being myself is the best approach. So whatever I'm going through and expressing sadness or frustrations or fear. Um, I think it's, it's a natural thing. So I think it's, it's now a part of who I am. It's, it's my identity and expressing everything that goes on emotionally, physically, and for an athlete, it's tough because athletes don't oftentimes express weakness. That's not something that 
we tend to do because weakness is, is a vulnerability. But now I see it as a, as a very powerful strength because if you know your weakness, you can also adjust and figure out what is it that's bothering you? How can I, it's like in sports where perhaps my weakness is a certain jump. If I don't know it's weakness, then I just turn a blind eye and it gets worse. But if I know it's weakness, I, I, I practice and I, I train and I get better and it, it slowly improves. So I think speaking out is, is a way to acknowledge there's an issue and, you know, perhaps correcting it or perhaps just dealing with it in, in your own way. That's a great metaphor for our listeners. If you are struggling with your mental health, trauma, triggers, kind of take what Michelle said in terms of if you're ignoring it, it might just get worse. But if you address it and actually pay attention to it and start to talk about it, you're in the process of healing and getting better. Mm -hmm. So in in Asian culture, there's a lot of pressure um, and fear of failure is, is something that I've heard consistently. How did you deal with that growing up and did it impact your mental health? Yeah. I mean, in, in Asian culture, there is a lot of pressure um, to succeed and, and the fear of failure is, is great. Uh, personally, I, I have to say, I, I did feel a lot of pressure to succeed. You know, growing up, um, <laughs> my parents, like I said, immigrated to the United States with the hopes of a better future, a better life. And their kids are supposed to be smarter and stronger and better than them. Um, a life where, you know, we have these great opportunities in America to go off to college, get a great job, make an incredible living, you know, really living out uh, what we all know is, is the American dream. And like I said, my parents made so many incredible, hard sacrifices um, to make ends meet. You know, coming to this country, not speaking English, uh, juggling multiple jobs, and, you know, driving their kids, i.e. my sister and I, to the skating rink and back and before and after school and, and giving us everything, like the clothes off their back, whatever. And it's all for you. So if you fail, that's not good, right? That's not good. That's, that's a lot of pressure to take on as a child. You know, of course I knew how much hard work my parents did for everything. And it wasn't easy. Um, and the arguments, you know, that they would have about money and about time, about, you know, just everything, logistics of like picking us up and how do we pay for, pay for skating equipment, travel, coach, um, times too, because my sister at the time was skating as well and we were competing um, at the same level. And then there's my brother and who's involved in other extracurricular activities. <laughs> so it, it, it was a lot. And I think I had to grow up really quickly and learning and understanding how many sacrifices my parents made. So in the back of my mind was like always wanting to succeed, want to make them proud, want to succeed, want to make them proud. It was that, that feeling that was always there. Um, and I of course had my own pressure of, of trying to be the best, especially in sports where you know exactly where you stand once you're done skating, the results come up and you know, you know, when you had a bad skate or when you're like, oh, well, that didn't turn out as well as I liked. And, and the expectation to be better and to prove to myself that I could be, 
you know, better the next time and, and to prove every, every day, every session, every, so it's a, it's a lot of pressure, but over the years I tried to realize you know, how much appreciation I had and gratitude that the sacrifices that my parents made and that I'm going to try my very, very best. And that's really all I can do. Do you think that impacted your mental health, that pressure that you talk about, knowing that your parents were struggling financially to, you know, skating is, I'm assuming, not a very cheap sport and, you know, with competitions and travels and and all of that. Did you ever feel like it affected your your mental health and, and that, like, what if I don't want to do this anymore or any any sort of thoughts in that from that perspective? That's a good question. I, I I have to put myself back in those shoes, you know, when I was 13 years old. And I, I remember my parents struggling to make ends meet and, you know, not knowing how they would financially afford a new costume or a pair of new skates. And there were some difficult conversations, to be honest, you know, where my parents were like, you might have to quit skating and everything that you love about it because we financially can't keep up. And I, emotionally, like, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand. You're like, I just love it. Why can't, you know, it's that hard reality, you know, that my my parents were trying their very best and sometimes it doesn't work out and sometimes it does. And understanding that I was getting like hand-me-down costumes from other skaters and I was still you know competing at the most elite level and the senior level at the national championships in used pair of skates and used costumes but for me it was that sense of gratitude that I'm here without a coach without anything with you know barely making it but you know gratitude that I I wasn't you know forced to quit but still given that like glimpse of opportunity and and very thankful looking back at those tough times where it could have been very easy uh, decision for my parents to say, mm, that's it, no more, sorry, and move on. So I think <laughs> in, in answering your question, the stress was great. The stress was like, they made a lot of sacrifices and now I hope you succeed and do well <laughs> and have fun at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I want to kind of chat a little bit about, you know, being part of the AAPI community. Did you experience discrimination growing up as a result of being Asian? Growing up, I, I definitely had kids make fun of me. You know, I, they would make, you know, Japanese, Chinese, Indian, yeah, I, and these sort of gestures um, and it wasn't discrimination per se, but it was more making fun or bullying or just based on your race. And over the years, I've heard things like, oh, you speak English so well. And where do you come from? I'm like, I'm from Los Angeles. No, where do you come from? And I'm like, I was born in the United States. And if you're referring to where my you know, ancestors or my, my family or my background, my parents immigrated from Hong Kong and Southern China. Uh, so I speak Chinese, but I'm born and raised in the United States. <laughs> Those are called microaggressions and they kind of are in the form of a compliment. They're hidden aggressors. 
they come in a form of a, of a compliment. So what you said, it's like, oh, wow, you speak English so well. So like to the person hearing it, it feels, oh, it's supposed to be a compliment, but it feels kind of icky <laughs> because yeah. like, why wouldn't I speak English so well? I, I what is the what is a good response? Because I try not to take it personally, to be honest. Uh, but it's an opportunity to inform, potentially to correct, depending on your relation with that person. Like, oh, I speak English like you. I'm an American. Um, I was born here. My parents immigrated to the United States. Oh, like, did your grandparents or great grandparents? It's an opportunity to have a discussion. And, uh, and it's hard, though, to be on the receiving end sometimes. And I, throughout the years, I've had some interesting ones, um, like one where my sister and I went shopping and this young woman turned around. I think we were checking out or something. And, and she kept in like, gosh, where do I know you? And we, I'd giggle and like, I'll just try to let her think about it, right? Maybe she'll come, come up with it. And then she finally turned around. She's like, I know you did my nails. And I'm like, <gasps> and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of speechless because, you know, this is somebody, a stranger that I don't know. And I, and I had no, I had nothing to say. Both my sister and I were like, <laughs> then yeah, yeah. I mean, stereotyped and, you know, that feeling, I, I, I just, I, I really you feel invisible, right? Yeah. Like you feel invisible. Like, yeah. And, <laughs> and I think it's really hard because, it's not that time to really, you know, lean in and, and tell her, like, don't stereotype, you know, people, it, it, then it's like a, it really is, it's really hard. And I think there's a spectrum, a varying degree on the spectrum of, you know, ignorance, discrimination, and pure, hurtful racism. And, and that, when, when that happened, I, I, I think it just very ignorant and like stereotyped and, it's kind of the idea of like a, a perpetual foreigner just because your last name sounds, you know, foreign. It's something that I just shrug my shoulder and just, like, I just, I know who I am. That's fine. I'm good. I know you asked, how do I respond to that? And I think what Micheline said originally was like, well, why? Why are you thinking that? So if someone's saying, well, your English is so well, like, why would you say that? Or... I know you because you were the lady that did my nails. Why? Why do you think that? Because then it gives them time to reflect and kind of call themselves out and be like, huh, that is probably something I shouldn't have said or I don't have a good response here to give this person in front of me that isn't offensive. Yeah, that's 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 good. I mean, I I guess it's important to speak out too, right? Because if you just let it slide, then it it occurs again. And perhaps just asking them why then it makes them reflect and makes them understand how how that was perceived on my end and being compassionate and understanding and perhaps be better informed or educate themselves, you know. Sometimes, like you said, like there are times that you, you would want to kind of reflect and, and help. Like one example that I have is, when I told somebody I was from Syria, they said, oh, when did you take off, take off your hijab? And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm Catholic. I mean, I'm not really religious if you want to go deep into it, but like, I'm, I'm Catholic. And they were like, wait, okay, so when did your family convert? And I'm like, mm, we didn't convert. Like, there's Christians in the Middle East. I mean, it kind of originated there, don't you think? You know? And so it was like this aha moment for this person. And they were like, oh, like, I didn't even think about it that way. So that was a good way for maybe that person to realize like, 
wait a minute, like I've been viewing the world in this way. So sometimes there's that, but then there's other times where it's just so like the nails I think is a little harder because they're just like assuming just because you're Asian or you look a certain way that you must be in a certain profession or you are that person or it just feels icky and like there's almost like no response to that. So it's almost like, okay, you know, and and you don't want to feel like you're responsible for everyone's education. Like I think everyone should take accountability for their own education. I mean, we live in America where there's, it's a melting pot of cultures. And so it's important, right? So going back to talking about your experiences, we spoke about growing up um, discrimination that you faced, but how about being in the spotlight and being a professional athlete? Did you notice any differences there? Was there obvious discrimination? There was a time right after the 1998 Olympic Games. I was 17 years old. I had just finished second place behind another American, uh, Tara Lipinski. And I remember the headline the next day after the free program, it said, American beats Quine. And I, I remember hearing how this caused a lot, as you can imagine, uh, of problems and and the mistake was corrected but it's that feeling like I well I was 17 and I I was like I that was a silly mistake don't they know that I'm an American and um <laughs> it just was shocking and disappointing and I I felt like disturbed by by that headline because here I was, you know, wearing Team USA, representing the United States so proudly. Um, but like I said, you know, those mistakes happen, and I try not to take it personally. And whoever wrote that headline, I'm sure, grew and learned from it and, and realized that it was a mistake. And I'm sure they <laughs> won't make that same mistake ever again. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. But that's part of the problem. I think that's like part of the issue that we're, we're all like seeing in our culture is that it's too often overlooked. It's too often made like it's another form of like that microaggression where it's happening so much. And it's it's the impact that it has on you. Like, what did that feel like for you seeing that headline? Like, you, your parents are working so hard to give you this life. You're an American. You, you know, you grew up in, you were born in the United States. You grew, you grew up in the United States and you are American. And so for somebody to just make a mistake like that, that would never happen to somebody who, you know, doesn't look the way you do. They will never experience that type of, you know, microaggression. Does that ever feel like, well, crap, like it's happening again. And it's it's just so, it's frustrating and I wish it would kind of go away. Well, I think systemic racism is a problem in the United States. And these microaggressions, these stereotypes, I think it's hard because we can't solve it overnight, you know. And, and when it happens to you, like we just talked about, you know, there are ways to address it if it's an appropriate time, if it's a person that's open-minded, willing to have these conversations and talk about it, even asking the question, why? Why do you think that? Why, you know, what makes you think that way? And it, you have to be patient as well. You know, it's not it's not you trying to correct every single person that does that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, maybe you can 
move the needle a little bit, um, <laughs> the better direction. But oftentimes, you just have to go on living your best life and knowing who you are. Like, don't let these people, people who put a label on you, decide who you believe you are. You know, I think things that happen, such as, you know, the ones that we already discussed, it actually made me understand perhaps more of who I am as a person and where I come from and how proud I am of that background. It sort of solidified, if you will, the person that I am. And, and it made it easier for me to perhaps have these conversations and articulate my frustrations, but also talk about these problems and perhaps continue to move the needle the right way, the right direction. And I think right now that is so extremely important because of everything that's been happening in the United States and in Canada, especially towards Asian women with the pandemic and having leaders and other people refer to it as the Chinese virus. How do you think that impacted the 23 million Asian American and Pacific Islanders living in the United States? The last year and a half, almost two years, it's really has been devastating to see the 150%, if not more now, increase in violence towards, uh, like you said, towards Asian women in particular, and our elders who are so defenseless. Um, you know, I think of the dangerous rhetoric that was coming out of the White House, in particular, our former president worsened at the height of the pandemic, calling it China virus and Kung Fu virus. Um, it really put a target towards Asian Americans as the root and the cause of the pandemic, which we all know is ludicrous. You know, what our leaders say is, is really important. And I'm, I was at the time, in the last year and a half, I was working for Joe Biden on his presidential campaign. And I, I leaned in even more because we needed a new leader that doesn't discriminate and doesn't throw around racist rhetoric like Kung Flu virus or China virus, because that can be um, a, a real problem and worsen all the challenges that it, it's not moving the needle in the right direction. How did that impact you personally and your family? Were you ever um, scared for yourself or for your family? Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely scared when my mom, you know, my sister, my aunts, my, you know, everybody, all my friends who are API um, at the height of, well, I wouldn't even say the height. I mean, the continuing increase of violence toward the Asian American community. This is something that needs to stop. And we need to be able to voice that this is not okay. You know, it's beyond a hashtag stop Asian hate. You know, I think there's so much to be done in terms of understanding and so much um, that needs to be addressed in this. Yeah, it's really hard to answer this question. <laughs> it's it's really hard because it's it's emo I can I mean I, I'm assuming it's very emotional and personal to you as well, but it's like much more than us like, you know, putting on a hashtag on social media, like there needs to be systemic change and it needs to start, like you said, leaders were, you know, feeding into this. And I would argue that they even, you know, started all of this with the rhetoric that they were using. So, um, you know, we need to, you know, not expect anything less than what, you know, than, than speaking 
the truth and speaking out against these types of like hate crimes and um, uh, discrimination and racism. It's a tough thing for the community, but it's more important than ever to have these conversations and address the problem and, you know, the systemic racism in our country. And it's more important than ever to speak out. And we all can, uh, if you have a platform, use it. Um, you know, educate yourself, learn about different cultures and backgrounds and history. You know, the AAPI community has faced, you know, painful history of racism that dates back to the 19th century, um, including the Exclusion Act of 1882 that prevent Chinese, Chinese workers from entering the country. Um, you know, there's so much that one can do. And, and if you see something, say something, as they say, um, you know, if you can contribute or volunteer your time to support organizations that are doing incredible work, do it. Um, be a part of the change um, that needs to take place in, in moving it the right direction. And I feel like the rhetoric, like we mentioned, of the China virus or Kung flu virus, that's a problem. Like, we have to make sure that our leaders are held accountable for what they say and and make sure that we stop as a as a country racism because we all have to work together how can we hold them accountable i know you mentioned like you know if you see something say something and you know a few other things that people can do but i think a lot of people struggle with like what it means to be an ally and like what what they can do to to make a difference yes using your social media platform if you have it to speak out but like what else can people do in order to hold these leaders that have so much power accountable and to hold others in our community accountable as well i think it goes bottom line speak up and and say something whether it's writing to your local representative whether it's you know seeing something or and being able to work as a community to do something. I know in in certain organizations, volunteering and helping, there were some watch, security watch, just to make sure that uh, Asian women and Asian American Pacific Islander uh, elders were getting home safely. You know, people band together. Um, and the importance of allyship is just understanding and having a greater understanding of, of differences, backgrounds, cultural understanding. Um, and like I said, we have to, you know, try to educate ourselves. I continue to learn, that's for sure. I have a, a very diverse group of friends, and I continue to learn um, from my friends, some that live abroad, some that, you know, I try travel extensively. So it's always just being open-minded and understanding and, you know, do what we can to change. Having conversations at any level, they don't always have to be macro in front of so many people. Talk to your friends, educate, talk one-on-one, -on -one, family members, if it's safe and you feel comfortable doing so. I think every single person, regardless of who you are, can make a difference somehow. Let's switch the conversation because I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about another important topic with being a sports figure, right? Like an athlete, a professional athlete. Um People are talking about mental health in sports now more more than ever. Um, can you share a little bit about what it was like for you becoming a professional athlete at such a young age? Yeah, I started skating when I was five years old. Uh, I dreamt of going to the Olympics at the age of seven. Uh, for 
so many years from the age of seven to 17 for those 10 years, it was like the pursuit of one thing. And that was to make it to the Olympic games. And I had such pure focus and drive and, and that sense of perseverance to chase my dreams. And I never thought about the pressure, never thought about all, all the things I was dealing with at the time. And I just have such admiration for the athletes who are speaking out on mental health because it's a challenge. It's You're under a lot of stress. Uh, there is anxiety and pressure to be the best that you can be. And I was having fun at the same time. I think that that was like a perspective that I had when I was skating was like, just have fun and enjoy it. And always in some ways lessen the stress and pressure. It alleviated, it almost made it like, you know, instead of making it a job, uh, changing the perspective of having fun and making this a hobby, the perspective changed completely. It was an attitude shift almost. Uh, and so I never really thought of you know, being a figure skating icon, but I just tried my best that I could be and then just keep doing it and having fun. And and that's not to say that it wasn't stressful and pressure, a lot of pressure involved, but it was always trying to have a good perspective on what I was doing. That's a great mindset shift. It wasn't easy. <laughs> In terms of like just being present and try to have fun. <laughs> yeah, because it, it can be. I mean, it's like the daily grind for an athlete. It's like, it can be very monotonous at times because you wake up at the same time. I have a set schedule of like a 10 o'clock, one o'clock, five o'clock training session. And then after that, I would go to the gym. And then in between, I would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and a snack. And it was so monotonous. And it was oftentimes the daily grind. But, you know, when I was struggling with inspiration, for example, I would just look to a, a young skater skating for the very first time and, you know, the the light in her eyes and, like, running towards the ice and, like, she doesn't even know how to skate and she's, like, running towards it. And then it reminds me why I started in the first place. And then it made me, like, it, it changed that attitude shift and perspective and it made me have fun again. And sometimes I, I wavered from, like, oh, do I have to train again? Do I have to do three, you know, three sessions and like five hours a day? <laughs> but then when you shift it, you kind of change your perspective and you it creates these new challenges. Like, let's see if I can do this. Let's see if I, as if like it's a kid, you know, first time skating. It's like, oh, maybe I could get better. Maybe I could go faster. Maybe I could jump higher. Maybe I could. And then it, it, it lightens the mood and it somehow takes the the pressure off not not to say that it, you turn a blind eye to it but it's suddenly you you just have a different perspective i think what happens with that is is their perspective shift is coming from a values based goal or just living your values so it's not necessarily that um you know you have to change your mindset in 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 the sense but i think what's happening there is like you're going back to the reason why you started to do it in the first place 
and your why. And I think when a lot of people start losing motivation, we lose touch with that why. We lose touch with our values. And if we can, you know, for anyone listening, like when you do feel in that rut and like that, you know, do I even want to do this anymore? Like go back to that why. Why am I doing this? You know, why did I start this in the first place? What do I value that this thing, this sport, this person, this job, you know, gives me? And see if you can get in touch with that. And if you can't find the why, then maybe it wasn't for you in the first place, right? But it sounds like for you, you kept being able to kind of reconnect with that initial core value for you. Exactly. I mean, that's so well said. And I have to ask myself, like, why did I do this again? Like, why am I stressed out? Because I chose this path. This is what I, I, I made that decision at such a young age. And I continue to make that decision. And and when you, like you said, when that, that fire, that, that energy, that passion is no longer there, that's when it's a good time to start thinking of alternate, you know, <laughs> alternate routes or paths or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and I think that's oftentimes, you know, transition from an athlete to, you know, transitions for athletes, period. It's a struggle because for so many years, for 20 years, I never had to ask myself what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do because I loved it. I, I love skating. I love, I love, I don't know what it is about it, but it's, it's, it's like the pressure of perhaps wanting to be the best that you can be and like training. And then you have six minutes to try to lay it all on the ice and, and, and compete. And perhaps I'm very competitive. I don't know. But when it was all done, it was like, what am I going to do? And, and finding that, you know, passion, finding a new passion. Like when I went back to school, it was like, I want to do this because I want to continue to learn. And that was enough for me to like continue that, that, that was the why, but you're right. You're right on about that. And I, I had to always go back to that. I always, you know, oftentimes when I was struggling, I always went back to my why, and it was such a simple answer. During our talk with Michelle, we learned how hard it is for the Asian American community to open up and ask for help. She mentioned her father immigrated to America and made it seem like they were fine and nothing bothered them until one day she bravely opened up and talked about how she was feeling. She even remembers the first time she said, I love you to her family. What a powerful moment, changing the way they relate to one another. If you find yourself needing to talk to somebody, BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. It's way more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. And it makes getting therapy easier. Just schedule your message, phone, or video session and complete it from your phone, in your car, in your home, or wherever you are. We love listening to Michelle talk about the importance of opening up when you need help and to not be afraid. As we've all learned, it doesn't make you weak. Knowing what you need makes you strong. There's a special offer for getting better listeners. Get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash getting better. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help.com slash getting better. I know you vocalized your support for Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Michael Phelps. What was your initial reaction when you heard all these things coming out in the news? 
when I was watching the Olympics and, you know, being an Olympian and glued to the television for two weeks, actually longer because I love Paralympics as well, which is after the Olympics. Uh, I was watching gymnastics and I was like, what's, what, what's happening? What is, you know, Simone, she's, she's withdrawing. I don't get it. What, you know, I was like the rest of the world a little bit like, you know, trying to figure out what's happening. Um, but when she spoke out in that her press conference and her really showing her cards, she she made a very quick decision. You know, perhaps as a spectator, it was like, I want an answer now. But it was like, then a few hours later, you know, when she did pull out of the team competition, but she didn't want to pull down the team because, you know, she was talking about the twisties. And like, I can only imagine what mentally and physically how difficult that is uh, to do everything that she does, you know, in the vault or whatever um, that she might be doing. And, and the fear of like, if I, if for figure skating, you, if you, what we call like pop, we like open up in the middle of jump. I kind of know that I'm not going to be upside down. I just know that like I, I might fall hard and like scrape and hit whatever, but I know I'm not going to, you know, break a neck. Um, so for her to vocalize that and articulate in such a short amount of time from the moment she pulled out to like the press conferences and like journalists and hundreds of reporters, if not thousands and millions of people watching her, um, what she was dealing with. And it's really commend, I mean, you know, admirable to vocalize that vulnerable side and, and, our perception of her, at least mine was like, she's this indomitable figure, you know, the superhuman um, Simone Biles flies in the air, does, you know, things that it can only uh, imagine. And for her to talk about it, that she has shown everybody that it's important to take care of yourself. And she stepped up and she was like, I need to deal with this and being so open and vulnerable to the public. I am so proud of these athletes as they speak up because you mentioned like we view them as these like, yeah, like you said, Simone Biles, like, you know, these are professional athletes. They've got it all together. And it almost it's almost dehumanizing sometimes, I think, if you really sit down and think about it, because we then expect them uh, to be perfect at everything emotionally, physically. And with the pandemic going on, we had like 18 months of pandemic before the Olympics went on. So she was dealing with the same traumas that all of us were dealing with, not having to practice and compete and go to a world event uh, and be put on this platform with no fans and no like, you know, people close to you. And I'm sure like the energy is different there plus the twisties. So I think, you know, we do have to be a little bit more compassionate, but I think it also has to be more people have to open up. And I think those conversations, there's always backlash. I, I know there was on social media, a lot of support for both of them, but there was also people that were like, you know, she let Team USA down. She, you know, is a failure. She and what do you say to people that say those kinds of things, knowing what you know as an athlete, like with the pressure and everything? It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about you don't know what someone else is going through. You know, you might understand, but you're not in those shoes. And everyone's trying to do the best that they can and make 
a decision that's good for themselves and, and for the team. And she, there was so much pressure on her, you know, and, and she vocalized that she was, she was talking about her feelings and her, what she was going through and then the twisties and then, and that's all you can really expect. Um, I definitely saw it and I said, wow, she's putting it all out there because she could have easily not answered any of those questions and walked away, you know, but she stuck around. She cheered on fellow athletes and was really good sport. So it's not that she wasn't trying, like she's trying her best. Uh, you know, she showed a, a weak side, you know, I don't know if I can do it. You know, how many, how often do we question that, you know, whether it's, an exam if you're a student and going, oh God, I'm, I studied days on end and like, or I trained as a skater for so many years and like, now it's the time to do it. Can I do it? It's that, that lingering, oh, can I do it? Like question. And if the answer is no, and if you, you have to take care of yourself, no one else is going to, unless you step up and you say something. And so there's such admiration for that. Um, being able to, you know, show the world that she's only human and she's tried her best and she's at the Olympic Games and she's, you know, and for her to just raise her hand and being like, she just doesn't, didn't disappear. She, she answered questions and she, and it's the same with Naomi. It's, it's hard to be thrust in the spotlight, but that happens when you're the best in the world and everybody wants to know every little thing, even when she's dealing with mental health issues and, you know, you might perceive her as like, oh, she's the best in the world. She's doing this. She's like, why, why does she have mental health? And it goes back to like the problem, like we don't know, you know, who knows what they're thinking, who knows what they're dealing with on a daily basis. And for one, it's like for her to deal with it on her own and not on her own, but like seek the help that she needs or, you know, but we have to be understanding. And I, I, I saw it as like a, a real strength and admirable because it's a difficult position to be in. But the one thing she, she did was speak out and, and say what was going on. It's not for others to judge that. And I think it's hard. I mean, I, being a, a figure skater and being in a sport uh, that is so subjective and you literally are being judged by your everything your musicality, your costumes, your, the way you look, your makeup, your, you know, who knows what you're being judged on. You know, you see the, the technical scores and like how you execute jumps and spins and, you know, speed over the ice and blah, blah, blah. But oftentimes there's like a component where you don't know what you're being judged on. And that's, that's tough. I mean, I, I remember, I had a conversation, a tough conversation with somebody after, after a competition and they were like, but your, it looked like your costume was very simple and so plain. And, you know, you didn't have a lot of makeup. Like I wanted a little bit more, like you could have skated faster. You could have jumped higher. Your, you know, your triple flip didn't flow out, you know, as I wanted something a little bit more substantive than like you didn't have enough makeup on. Like, I didn't know this was a beauty contest. Like, <laughs> so, so it's hard I mean it's it's tough like for these athletes who are real like cultural icons like Simone and Naomi Osaka 
they're thrust into the limelight and expect it to be so perfect. And every little gesture, every little comment, every little, as Naomi said, like my tweet can be taken out of context sometimes and scrutinized and criticized. And I think the the best thing you could do in, in those circumstances is try to live your best life and not let those critiques and judgment change who you are, you know, speak out, <laughs> you have your own truth. And that's, that's all you need to live by, not someone else's judgment on you. I love that. And, and it's an important topic, this like image stuff that, that there's so much pressure. And you personally have mentioned in interviews that you've struggled with, you know, anxiety and body image issues. And, you know, one of the examples, it's like, why are you commenting on my makeup and my outfit when I'm like, doing things here that are pretty impressive. But can you talk a little bit about like what it's like, you know, being front and center of the world in the Olympics and on top of that struggling with body image issues or mental health, like anxiety? I grew up in front of the public eye at the age of 13 years old. It was during the Olympic Games in 1994. Uh, I was sort of thrust into the limelight with the whole Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding. I was the alternate going up, uh, going to Lillehammer Olympics that year. It was like the most watched. I think it broke all the records, surpassed Super Bowl ratings, etc. And I was, you know, <laughs> I had interviews and I was like, I don't, at 13 years old, like I saw myself on magazines and newspapers and on television. And uh, <laughs> it was a little bit shocking. Um and, you know, it, it was hard because I went through puberty in front of <laughs> millions of people. And and like I said, it's skating is a tough sport because you're judged and, and critiqued and scrutinized every little thing that you do from uh, what you're wearing to the music that you chose to um, how you look um, in terms of body image. And I, I know that a lot of figure skaters, a lot of my friends suffered with eating disorders. And I, I had to like carry, make sure that I was a certain fighting weight, as I said. So it was tough. And, you know, it, at times going through this in front of the public eye was, it was hard. And luckily I had an incredible support system with my incredible parents, my coaches, my, you know, I had a fabulous trainer. I had so throughout the years, that support system that like helped get me mentally, physically sound to be the best that can be and also to be able to put your best foot forward. And, and what does that mean? To be able to like deal with certain things that were challenging. There was a lot of pressure, a lot of this and a lot, but try my best. So then <laughs> I don't think anything when I'm at a competition, but trying to do an incredible skate, both short program, long program, and, and simplifying it to that, to that. Thank you for sharing that. It's so meaningful. In terms of judgment and mental health, is there one thing that you would like to share with anyone who is listening, who is potentially struggling, or who has gone through similar things that we've talked about today? I think bottom line from our conversation is about speaking up and about acknowledging some issues that you might have. I think personally, there were times that I reflect back at, like when I was 
a, a teenager competing at the height of my athletic career, I could have had somebody to talk to that was a sounding board. But, you know, I was, you know, dealt with my own like social stigma and like the idea that you're seeking help mentally. What's wrong with you? What's, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with you. You need to be able to talk to somebody, make sure that you're getting the right help, make sure that you're speaking up and surrounding yourself with the people that can help you. I love that. And, and you're right, that has been a theme, whether it has to do with the injustices in our culture and the systemic issues going on, whether it has to do with mental health or seeing someone struggling, speak up and talk to someone, ask for help, even if it's a friend, if you can't, don't have access to mental health care, don't have access to medical care, uh, talk to someone who feels like a safe person to you that might just listen you know, to you and offer you a warm and safe space to be. So thank you. This has been such an insightful and deep conversation. And we thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your experiences with us. I'm I'm so glad that this message is getting out there. And we know that so many people are going to resonate with everything you have to say. Well, I appreciate um, having this conversation with me. And it, like you said, it's so important for all of us to to talk about it. And it's tough. I'm like sweating here thinking about, you know. <laughs> And it's it's so important to acknowledge. Yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic, and it, it really is because it's also personal. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much for for this and including me. Thank, Thank you. you. So we just finished our interview with Michelle Kwan. I think it was incredible and so important. I'm really excited to put it out there. What did you think, Micheline? I thought it was so amazing and deep and such an important conversation in terms of like what we've been going through as a culture, just both with like the AAPI community and, and the global pandemic that's going on and also what's been going on because of the Olympics and mental health and athletes speaking out. Right. Um, so the AAPI community is Asian American and Pacific Islanders. For anyone that's listening, if we ever use the acronym and you weren't sure what it was. That is what we are referring to. But yeah, it was such an important conversation. We touched on her childhood growing up and what it was like for her culturally, what is happening right now in the world with the pandemic and the racism that Asian Americans are experiencing, and a little bit about um, her being in the spotlight and an athlete and the pressure that she had to deal with both externally and internally. What was your favorite part of the podcast? Honestly, it's really hard to choose because I thought it was just so deep on every level. Like we touched on so many things. I personally resonate a lot with her story growing up with emotions in terms of, um, you know, growing up in, in her Asian culture and me growing up in a Middle Eastern culture. I feel like the cultures have a lot of similarities. And so as she was talking about, you know, her emoting to her family and like talking about how she kind of broke that mold within her own family to talk about emotions, which wasn't the norm. It kind of resonated with me. Um, microaggressions that we talked about, uh, we both shared some experiences about like things that people have said uh, to us that, you know, are considered microaggression. We go over microaggressions. And I think that's an important topic. So I think that part of the conversation just was really personal to me. So I think that was my favorite part. What about you? I think oh, so many, of course, talking about the pressure being a professional athlete. I think that's such an important conversation right now. 
But something that she was talking about that stuck with me was just how her parents were really struggling growing up, but they would put on a happy face. And then one day she saw a photo where she was so happy and her dad talked to her about how much she was he was actually struggling in that photo and she had no idea at the time. And it was just like, it actually gave me goosebumps. And I was like, we have no idea what people are experiencing. And I don't think that this is unique to her. I think with many immigrants, it's often let's put on a happy face and pretend like everything's okay and not show our children or people around us that we're struggling. So I think it was a big eye opener and something that we can all learn from. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they have no option. They have to. And she, you know, talking about like, not, you know, put your head down and just keep going. Because I think what she was talking about was like being an immigrant, you really don't have a choice because you already have to work so much harder than, you know, non-immigrants to get to the place. And it's so powerful, I think, what you mentioned about that picture, what she mentioned about that picture. Because, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, your kids don't feel like the struggle that you're experiencing. It's okay to talk about struggles, but they shouldn't be able to feel that. And I really appreciate parents that are able to, you know, you're going to have the best life even if we're struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how to vocalize it any more than saying that it was so impactful. Yeah, I think uh, we also cover the topic about the athletes and like, you know, what happened with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka talking about mental health, you know, athletes and the pressure they face, the body image issues. So there's a lot of really great information in this episode and we hope that you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening today. This discussion is so important to ending the mental health stigma. If you want to help the mental health movement, you can do so by leaving a written review for this podcast to help it reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into these topics and learn more about mental health, make sure you subscribe and follow Micheline and Nadia's mental health podcast, Mind-Fully Healing, anywhere you stream your podcasts.